Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Lori Snyder, who's the founder of the Writer's Happiness Movement and a longtime yoga and meditation teacher, about today's topic, meditation for the academic. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you. So glad to be here. I am so glad to have you on. I've been eagerly waiting for us to be able to tape this. Um, So to start us off, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So the first thing I want to say is that I've had a lot of careers in my life. So anyone listening to this who is currently feeling a little overwhelmed at choosing a career, I know some of you probably know exactly what you're doing, but I'm sure some of you are like I was where you're not really sure. It is totally okay. You will still have a beautiful and wonderful life if you're not sure right now what you want to do. Um, I have been a marine biologist. I have been a fourth grade teacher. I have managed several different retail shops. I have owned my own yoga studio. I have, as Christina said, been a longtime yoga and meditation teacher going on um, 18 years now. And I'm also a writer. My debut novel is coming out this year. And I am the founder of the Writer's Happiness Movement, which offers tools for writers to help them create the psychic space that we all need to write. And it does this through offering free happiness tools for writers, as well as some financial support. So, and there have been some other careers in there as well, but those are the main ones that I have done. And for listeners, we'll provide some links attached to this episode so they can find Writer's Happiness online. Um, I wonder if you'll also tell us a little bit about what your own uh, academic journey was. How does one um, become a marine biologist and then morph into all these other things? Did you (laughs) go in and out of various kinds of training and education? And how did that look for you? Yes, I'm happy to. So I, uh, I have a lot of years of college. I went into my undergrad um, fairly young because my birthday is falls in a weird cutoff in the year. So I was 17 when I started my undergrad and I'd already been taking courses at UCLA when I was a high school senior. And I went into college not having any idea what I wanted to do. Um, And I did graduate from UCLA with a bachelor's in communication studies. That was a degree I chose because it was interdisciplinary. And at the time, it was impacted and challenging to get into. And I like those kinds of challenges. But it wasn't a degree I chose with any idea of what I wanted to do with it. I just was kind of like, this is interesting. I like some of the classes I'm taking. I'm going to take this degree. And I had always just, I love school. I love school going into college. Um, I had a very stressful time in college. I worked full time the entire time I was in school. So those four years, I have two years towards a master's in marine biology, which I did not finish. I switched out of that master's in marine biology to get what was called then a master's of professional writing, which is equivalent to an MFA degree. It's a terminal degree in the arts, but is a slightly different structure from say an MFA in creative writing. So the MPW, the Master's of Professional Writing program, you choose a focus and then a minor focus. So I had a focus of fiction and a minor focus of creative nonfiction. And you go through the program with those things. There's only a few of those, a handful of those in the country now, I believe. I think and the one I was at, which was at USC, has actually closed out a couple of years ago. Um, 
My academic experience was incredibly stressful. It was really challenging. I went in as somebody who really loved school and loved to learn, but had no idea how to navigate the system that is a big, giant academic institution, especially one like UCLA, which is a research institution, which doesn't tend to focus on their undergrad teaching that much. And so I got very lost very quickly. And also, I was working full time and it is not that was not a place that was encouraging of their students working full time. And so in addition to to feeling very lost in terms of having any direction or any help of where I wanted to go, it was this giant university and I was also working full time. So I didn't have additional time to go seek out more help and I didn't really know how to make the system work for me. When I graduated from UCLA, I had intended to go right to grad school, but I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. So it was actually a really funny story. I was working at the time down the street from a bookstore and they knew me there because I was there all the time buying books. And so I walked in towards the end of my senior year in college. I walked in and I talked to the people who worked there and I bought a book on taking the GRE. And I bought that book and a couple other books on the GRE. And about a month later, I came back and I exchanged that book for an atlas of the country. And the same person helped me. And he looked at me when I made the exchange and he said, you're not going to grad school, are you? And I said, I am not. I'm driving around the country instead. <laughs> and so, so I took three months off. I saved a bunch of money. I took three months off and I drove my little tiny 1980 Toyota Celica that was literally held together with duct tape around the country for three months because I'd never seen much of this country. And I'd grown up in Los Angeles. I thought maybe I want to move, but where would I move? I haven't been really anywhere. So I drove around for three months, sort of looking for a place to live, sort of visiting some friends and sort of honestly proving to myself that I could do something that was a little scary to me. And at the end of those three months, I thought, mm, I don't want to move out of Los Angeles. I really love Los Angeles. I just want to relocate within Los Angeles. So I did that. And then I got a job at a coffee house because I thought I might want to open a coffee house bookstore. And I worked there for three years. I think I ended up booking the music. It ended up being this big, really popular club type coffee house. And I loved it. And I booked the music there for a while. And it was fantastic. And then I decided it was time to go back to school. And so I applied to and got into a marine biology program. But because my undergrad was not a hard science, I had a lot of undergrad classes to make up. And so I did those. And as I was doing those, I realized that science, as much as I love science, it's also one of my dear loves, that the way it was taught was, wasn't quite, quite right for me in that when you're going through an advanced degree in a science, as some of you may know, you need to focus on one very small thing in one very small environment. That's what you end up writing your thesis, your dissertation on. And I was not that interested in how one small organism responded in one small environment. I was really much more macro on how I thought about things. And as I got more and more frustrated in a program that didn't feel like it was right for me, although I had fantastic professors, I have to say, I had a great experience in this program academically but it just didn't fit right. And I realized that when I thought about what I wanted to be doing in 10 years, I thought, well, I wanna be teaching and I wanna be writing and I wanna be traveling. So I don't think I need this degree for that. I think I was already at the time also teaching marine biology and oceanography into schools. I had my own business going in and doing that. And so I switched out of that program into the master's of professional writing program, which I did finish, which I was, very happy with. It was designed for people who worked full-time, so the classes were all in the evening, and they didn't expect you to take a load that was 
um, unsustainable if you worked full time. Most of the people there were a little bit older um, as I was at the time. And that was incredibly helpful to have to feel supported and also working full time while I was in school. And during that time, I wrote and I worked full time. And then after that program, I started trying to figure out what to do with all of it. So that's my my long answer to my academic career. That's a beautiful answer. And I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability because so often stories of success, which is where we started with you, she's founded the Writer's Happiness Movement. Her first book is debuting soon. Um, it sounds like every everything always just lined right up. And the pieces of the stories that a lot of people withhold are, well, this kind of didn't work out. Well, I had to change there. And those those pivots, those ability to figure out what to do next, I would argue are how you get to a place where you're able to find a writer's happiness movement, where you're able to get that book published. It's all those pieces along the way where you figured out what to do in the difficult moments that I think enrich the positive moments. I, I absolutely agree. And it's really interesting because for me at least, there are so many things that I love. There are so many things that I love to do that I could see being a career. But for each one, when I step into the career that goes with it, as much as I love certain aspects of it, it just never quite fit me correctly. And part of that was because I really, turns out, I really have to work for myself, which I've done now for, oh, I don't know, uh, 15 years or so, that I really don't do that well working for other people. And when you work for yourself, especially in today's world, the, there's lots of pros and cons, which is a whole different podcast. But when you, when you work for yourself in terms of what you can create now as a single person, an individual person working for yourself, you can take all these things you love. You can take them all and you can figure out how to put them into something that is really different and unusual. And if you are able to have the time to do that, if you are able to have some time when you're working another job that's supporting you and you, therefore you can actually play with this thing on the side and not worry so much about if it's bringing an in income right away. If you are able to do that, you can really build yourself something that takes a little bit of everything you love and forms something completely new. One of the things that I'm hearing throughout your story so far is the ability to check in with yourself and notice when or if something is working or it's not. And that leads me to the question of mindfulness and when you became aware of mindfulness and and how that has led to your interest in meditation. Mindfulness is a word. This is a great question. Thank you. Yes, all of this has to do with being able to to really check in with yourself and just get a feel for who you are. It can be challenging to say for sure, like really truly who you are, not the things you've picked up from other people or the labels that you've thrown on you or somebody else has given you that you've accepted or just the ones they've given you that you don't like, but they've stuck or the roles that we play in our lives, the jobs we have, the roles of, you know, sibling or parent or whatever they are that we play it can be hard to separate our own true self from all those things. And mindfulness is not a word I even heard for, I think, probably until I was, I don't know, in my late 20s. And 
it wasn't a word I had heard growing up ever, and yet it was very much who I was. So for me, one of the other things that I, I've done my whole life is I've been a dancer my whole life. And when I was a serious, more serious dancer is when yoga started getting really huge in Los Angeles, like really huge, just blowing up. All you could hear everybody, everywhere was what yoga class people were going to and what yoga teacher they loved and all those kinds of things. And all my dance friends got really into yoga and they kept telling me how much I would love yoga. And I was a very movement-centered person. I like to move around. Moving is where my body feels best. It always has been. The idea of, in my mind, yoga was sitting still. And I thought, uh, what? <laughs> why would I want to do that? <laughs> and at the same time, there was a piece of me that I just knew that that was going to be good for me. Whatever that yoga thing was, it was going to be good for me. And so it took a couple of years for me to give in and go to some yoga classes. And I don't remember if that's the first time I heard the word mindfulness or, or not, but I will tell you that I hated it the first like 10 classes I went to. I hated it. And I don't know why. I kept trying different teachers. I don't know why I didn't just quit. It's not really like me to keep doing things I don't like. But there was, again, something about it where I thought, oh, I'm going to really, this is going to be good for me. And so when I found a teacher that I finally clicked with and resonated with, it was a teacher who was very breath centric. And for me, that was much easier than meditation because meditation is usually sitting still. That's more classic. There's other kinds as well, but it's classic to sit still and not move. And again, that to me, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I still struggle with that, to be honest, after all these years. But breathing even if you're being still because you're watching your breath, you're doing, it feels like you're doing something. And so for someone like me, who was very centered around doing things, breath work was a phenomenal doorway to get into it, just phenomenal. And as I practiced more and more breathing techniques with different kinds of yoga and movement, my body started to understand what it meant to move and what it meant to have moments where you recover from movement and what it meant to have moments of stillness where you settle in that are these kind of magical pauses between things. So that's really when I started thinking about meditation. And probably not surprisingly, it took me a very, very long time to find a meditation practice that would stick. And because I was very involved in yoga, I was going to yoga several times a week and going to workshops and different trainings. I started doing the same thing with meditation. I started trying to take or taking meditation workshops from visiting masters or reading books on meditation or trying different techniques. At the time, this is way before smartphones or phones and apps and any of those things where you could just sit down at home and have a guided meditation that didn't exist then. And so I feel so old saying that. It's really funny. So um, so I would try all these different techniques and nothing worked and nothing worked and nothing worked. And interestingly enough, what finally worked is I found a book at a yoga studio called Passage Meditation. And for some reason, it grabbed my eye and I pulled it off the shelf. And it's written by um, a man who has since passed away. His name is um, Eknath Eswarin. And he was originally from India and had come to the US and had become a professor at UC Berkeley. And he had taught the first certified course, academic course in meditation and mindfulness. And so his entire book and his, his system really was laid out kind of like a syllabus, which 
completely spoke to me as someone with a gazillion years of college. <laughs> I was like, oh, I understand this way to meditate. This is a syllabus. I can follow this plan. And so I did. And that was what actually let me get into a regular sitting meditation practice, which to be totally honest, comes and goes in my life. I, I wish I could say I was the person who I sit every morning for 20 minutes, but I am not that person. I sit sporadically and try to continually try to get a regular um, disciplined sitting practice. And sometimes I have it for a year or two, and sometimes I don't have it at all. And that's how it goes. But it's something that you come back to? It's always something I come back to. And it's always a state of mind. The whole idea of mindfulness, I kind of think of it as just paying attention. You're just paying attention. So you can be mindful while you were doing something else. You can be mindful while you are listening to someone you love very much tell you something. You can be mindful while you are writing. You can be mindful while you are in class listening. You can be mindful of not being mindful. It, it's, just, it's just paying attention. So while mindfulness and meditation are often interchangeably used, I personally think of them as very different things. You can be mindful in any situation, driving a car, Meditation is, is much more specific to me. It's a narrower um, field of mindfulness, I guess you could say. And there's so many meditation techniques that the one that you choose may not feel like, quote unquote, mindfulness. It may feel like something else. For me, mindfulness is the skill that or the muscle that meditating uh, hones for me. So if I find that I'm not really very present in the things that I'm doing or the people I'm with, and I go back to my meditation practice, I find that in the other, you know, 23 and a half hours of my day, I'm more mindful. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I think they feed into each other. I think that, that you can use both of them to move into the other. I also find for myself that it is very true that when I begin my day with um, meditation, or I often start with a yoga practice. That's, that's always been pretty consistent for me as I do a yoga practice, with, which is often described as a moving meditation. And it does feel that way to me many times. If I start my day with that, it definitely shifts things. It definitely, even if it's just a reminder of that stillness for a breath or two, it can be really huge. That's how I feel about swimming, that for me, it's a physical uh, meditation. And I've heard my cousin describe running that way when he really gets into the zone. There's so many pathways to it. And that's the thing, too, is while I think there is huge benefit to a sitting meditation practice, and there certainly has been huge benefit for me. And, and while I'm thinking, about it, I just want to throw in there that it doesn't have to happen in the morning. That's a really classic time of day to do it. But uh, I, to be honest, I rarely sit first thing in the morning because when I have just gotten up from bed, the last thing I want to do is sit down. I want to move. So I hardly ever sit in the morning. My sit usually happens early afternoon or somewhere like that when I do it. But there, there's so many pathways into that same, that same zone. I think the, the benefits to the moving types of meditation are that you're moving and you're doing something, and it's it's honestly, they're a lot easier for a lot of us. They're way easier for me, way easier for me. The benefit to a sitting meditation practice, or even just sitting down and taking three or four deep breaths and not calling it meditation, is that 
you truly don't have to focus on anything else. Like, for example, if I'm doing yoga, I still have a little piece of my mind on I'm making sure my alignment is right. I don't want to hurt myself. If I'm at home, which I usually am and always these days, you know, if my cat comes up and sits on me, I'm now no longer doing yoga. I'm now petting my cat. <laughs> and so, or if, you know, or if um, a smoke alarm goes off or someone knocks on the door, all these things are going to, I'm always aware that those things might happen. And if they happen, or if my phone bings, if I forget to turn my phone off and my phone bings at me, it, it's a very different feel for me than committing to sit still for a few moments and breathe and center. Because when I do that, I don't forget to turn my phone off. I, you know, if someone knocks at the door, I don't get up and get it. I'm in a much different place because my mind is not partially already looking for those things, if that makes sense. It does. I want to circle back to something that we've been touching on a bit, which is the breath and the role of the breath in whatever form of mindfulness or meditation practice that one uh, is gravitating towards. Can you talk a bit about how attention to the breath or breath work itself has an important effect on us and, and what that effect is? Oh, of course. I'm a huge fan of breathing techniques. I find them to be just so incredibly powerful. And there's multiple things that these, there's again, lots of different techniques and multiple things they do. But one of the big things that any kind of, whether you call it breath control in yoga, it's called pranayama, which literally translates to life force control, or you call it breath work or breathing techniques. What this does on a very physiological level is it moves us out of our fight or flight nervous system, the one that keeps us on edge, the one that most of us live in all the time in a modern world. We are not designed, our, our human bodies are not designed to stay in that nervous system. That is designed for short bursts of adrenaline that save us when we're in danger, quite literally. But because of the modern world we live in, we're always under small pieces of trauma and stress, even before 2020. We're always under these small pieces of trauma and stress. And most of us live in the nervous system that is fight or flight. In that nervous system, what happens is we take really deep, short, shallow breaths. We go, <sighs> because we might need to power ourselves running away, or we might be running away. That kind of breath in a converse relationship, that kind of breath signals to the body that we should be in fight or flight. If we're breathing shallowly and short, that tells our body that we're in danger and we have to run soon. And so it kicks us into that nervous system. On the flip side, deep, full breaths tell the body that we're safe. We're not about to run away. There's nothing to be be concerned about. And so that will kick us into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the also often called the rest and digest nervous system. And that is the one where everything deregulates in the body, the shoulders soften, the heart rate slows, everything starts working, the digestion kicks in. There's a reason when we're stressed, we don't want to eat, or if we eat, it bothers our stomachs, because our whole digestive system, when we're in fight or flight, it cannot work right, it is clenched up. And as soon as we shift into the rest and digest, that's when the stomach starts to gurgle, things start to move again, we can actually process food and get nutrients from food. So it's, it's really huge, the breath, because we tend to think that we have to get relaxed first and then our breath will be fine. 
but our breath will have will do the same thing. It's the back door into relaxing the entire body, relaxing the entire system. And once the system is relaxed, it is much easier to stay present and to pay attention to the things we care about and the things that we love. And we don't, we don't want to miss a moment of our lives that's precious. And so when we can be present in that moment, then we actually are alive. And I was thinking another benefit of that for other students listening is it improves the clarity of thought. Yes. Yes. So I'm probably, we, go ahead. I was going to say, when we calm, we can calm down the body, the parts of the mind that are draining our energy so much, which are the stressed out parts, calm down as well. And then the part of our mind, which can work on critical thought process, has much more, uh, much more space to do its job. Because it's not, the body's not drained in so many different directions. We get calmed down all throughout our system and we can go into clarity of thought. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, we, we all know those moments, especially if you're in college right now, we all know those moments of overwhelm that are maybe more than moments and where we're darting between, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. And then there's, you know, social media and there's the phone and then our, our responsibilities and our, our families and our friends and our jobs. And there's so much that our mind tends to just jump from thing to thing, which makes it almost impossible to concentrate on anything long-term or deeper or, or just focus on writing a paper or understanding something challenging or understanding nuances and things. And so, yes, as between the breath work or meditation or mindfulness or however you get there, it has a huge benefit on focus. And it's interesting, so many studies have been coming out because these are things that are just started to be studied relatively recently, mindfulness meditation. And so there's all these studies that have been coming out about how it improves focus, it improves clarity of thought, it improves cognitive reasoning. Besides the physiological benefits that we're familiar with, which are the de-stressing and the letting go of tension and the body systems working better, it it impacts immensely our focus and concentration. And it also impacts immensely the part of our brains responsible for joy. And in fact, studies on longtime meditators will show that the parts of the brain responsible for joy are much more active than they are in most other people. So it not, doesn't just bring clarity and concentration and focus, it brings joy and it also brings empathy and it also brings kindness and compassion. You mentioned earlier that sitting still was unappealing to you. So how did you find <laughs> how did you find guided meditation as a way to help you have a meditation practice that suited your need for a bit more stimulation than sitting quietly on a mat for 20 minutes with no sound and no movement and no nothing just you sitting still. <gasps> Uh, yes. Well, I, it's funny because as you say that, I am twirling around in my desk chair as we speak. So um, guided meditation is immensely helpful for me. And there's so many great apps now that, that are give free guided meditation. So I highly recommend check out the different apps, find one you like. There's so many good ones. What's great about guided meditation is number one, the mind doesn't have to wonder what you're doing because you're listening to something. So you're doing something. So the mind's happy because it's listening to something. And if there is silence in the guided meditation, as there usually is, oftentimes they will tell you 
we're going to be silent now for a while. So the mind doesn't go into a panic of, oh my God, how long do we have to be quiet? It knows it's a finite amount. Usually too, you've looked at your, you've set up your guided meditation if you're using an app. And so you know exactly how long it is. Or if you're in a class or a workshop, you know how long that training is. So you know about how long you're going to be there, which is helpful as opposed to sitting by yourself in silence. Even if you set a timer, it's hard to gauge time going by, especially when you're newer. Once you've done this for a while, you can gauge how much time has passed. But it's it's hard and the mind can get really antsy. It's also really nice to give have somebody give you a focus for the meditation to say, you know, bring bring your awareness here. Bring your awareness over here. Now bring your awareness over here. Now mentally see if you can feel this thing. Now physically see if you can feel this thing. Or whatever the meditation is. Here's a mantra, which is a word or a phrase that gets repeated repeat this after me, I'm going to say something and you repeat it, you know, mentally, internally in your own mind. Having, having something, quote unquote, to do, I sort of hate to use that phrase, but having something to listen to, that is literally taking your hand and guiding you through it, is really, really beneficial. And is much, it's much easier, but it is not less profound. I want to make that really clear. It is not better, quote unquote, to sit quietly on your own for 20 minutes than it is to listen to a guided meditation that a good teacher is leading for 20 minutes. They're different. They're just different animals and they're equally as profound and you will have different kinds of experience in both of them. I I also want to say, because I keep using 20 minutes as an example, and that's because it's sort of like a standard time you'll hear a lot of people talk about. Meditation, breathing, these things are so beneficial if you have one minute it will shift your day if you spend one minute if you find yourself in a place where you are really overwhelmed or exhausted or there's just so much going on or you can't focus and this is counterintuitive but especially especially if you do not have time to do this especially then pause set your timer for one minute and for one minute sit or stand up straight and breathe slowly and deeply. One minute, it will shift things. I wonder if you would lead us in a guided meditation, Lori. I would love to, that would be delightful. Um, Is there a certain time you would prefer? It is up to you. You are teaching us and we are, we are here for it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep this on the shorter side. I'm telling, I'm just letting you know this because again, sometimes it's helpful to know what this is going to look like. This is going to be somewhere between five and 10 minutes. It's going to be a shorter one. So again, for me with meditation, I tend to be pretty loose around how it's done by which I mean, there are, classic ways it's taught and they're important. There's reasons for these classic ways. And at the same time, I find that sometimes they're not that attainable or they don't work that well for people all the time. And so the classic way to sit for a meditation is to sit maybe on a cushion, maybe on the floor, often cross-legged, sitting up really straight with the spine. This is because it's easier to breathe you open up the lungs more in this position. It's also because it helps us stay alert and not fall asleep as opposed to lying down. However, I will suggest that any comfortable position is perfect. You can sit in a chair, you can sit on the floor, you can sit on a couch, you can lie down. The the risk of lying down always is falling asleep. 
I am also kind of the belief that we don't sleep enough in our culture. So if you fall asleep, you fall asleep and you probably needed it. So whatever is comfortable for you, find a, find a place to sit or lie down or stand even, whatever is best for you. As much as possible, get as comfortable as you can in a way that will let you be there for five or 10 minutes without having to move too much because of any pain in the body. If you do get uncomfortable, feel free to move out of the position you're in and into a different position. But I would suggest that you do so, again, mindfully. So move slowly from one position to the next. Try not to make it a fast, jerky kind of movement. And when you arrive in the new move or the new position, just let yourself settle. So once you find a position, eyes can be closed or open, whatever's most comfortable for you. And for this first moment, just take a few breaths, inhales, exhales, without trying to change your breath at all. Breathe in, breathe out. And notice the feel of the breath. And notice the breath may change. It may change and shift. That's completely natural. And then consciously relax the shoulders. Let them soften. Consciously relax the jaw. And consciously relax as much as possible. Relax the muscles in the neck. And on your next inhale, take a deep, full breath in. Make this a full, round inhale. Make it big and deep. And then open the mouth, sigh it out, let it go. Take a regular inhale, exhale. And then again, full, deep inhale, fill the lungs. Open the mouth, sigh it out, let it go. Breathe in, breathe out, just a regular inhale, exhale. And then one last time, full deep inhale. Make this a slower one. See if you can fill the inhale up to the top of the collarbone. And when you get there, pause for a moment with the lungs full, pause. Pause a little more. 
And then open the mouth, sigh it out, let it go. And from here, just let the breath do what it does. No special technique, just let the inhales and exhales flow. And then see if you can draw the awareness to the part of yourself that feels most like you, most truly you. So the part of you that is wild and free, unfettered. The part that exists independent from your roles as a student or anything else. The part of you that exists independent from any words you use to describe yourself or that others use to describe you. The part of you that is truly, truly you, fully unabashed. And sometimes it can be very easy to find this piece of ourselves. Sometimes it can be more challenging. Whichever it is in this moment is perfect. If you can find it, really notice it. Turn the awareness there. What does it feel like in the heart, in the body, in the breath? If finding that part of yourself is challenging right now, that's okay. Notice that it's challenging. Turn the awareness there. And don't worry because that part is still there and strong and powerful. See if in this moment you can trust that it will uncover soon. And take a few breaths, either feeling that part of yourself, or if it's challenging right now, Use the imagination to imagine what it might feel like. And then see if you can let that part of yourself grow bigger. If it starts off as a tiny spark, feed that flame, breathe into it. If it's easy to access, if it's already huge and beaming, let it get even bigger. 
See if you can let it expand to fill your whole self. And again, if it's challenging to feel, imagine what this would feel like. The truest part of you expanding to fill your whole self. Sit as this truest part of yourself sits or lies down or whatever position you're in. Breathe as this truest part of yourself breathes. Maybe you can let it expand out past the confines of the body. Maybe it grows larger than the body itself. Because this part of ourselves that is most real, that is most true, this is what your world needs most. This is what our world needs most. So let yourself step into that. And see if you can inhabit that undefended for a few more breaths. And if it's comfortable, please place one hand on the heart, one hand on the belly area. This is a gesture of self-compassion. If you have a hand on the heart and a hand on the belly, notice when you inhale if the hands rise or not. No right answer to this. Just notice if one hand rises, if both hands rise, neither hands rise, just watching. Notice if when you exhale, if one or both hands falls. And I find this practice of really remembering who I am, I find it to be the most powerful of all. For clarity, for kindness, for letting go of tension, for stepping away from overwhelm, for finding some spaciousness. So please take your deepest breath in, fill the lungs. You can relax arms down if you like. Deepest breath out, sigh it out, let it go. 
And then please bring the palms of the hands together at the forehead. This indicates the desire for clear and calm mind. Bring the hands to the lips for clear and loving communication. And hands to the heart for clear and loving intention. And may all of our practices, not just meditation or yoga, but our practice of being alive, of showing up in our lives, of learning, of studying, of teaching, of loving, of caring, of whatever we do, may all of our practices serve to remind us who we are and what we love. Thank you so much for doing that. Lori, that was wonderful. My pleasure. I want to thank my guest, Lori Schneider, for being here today and teaching us about meditation. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.